0: The Olympics are ending today. Many of you have probably been watching. We've been watching in our house. And so I'm going to begin with an Olympic story that was made famous in the movie Chariots of Fire. If you're of a certain age, you've seen that movie. Probably if you're of a different age, you have not. All right, it's the story of the Scottish runner, Eric Little, who was born in China to missionary parents. And, and he went back to the U.K. for education, for, for boarding school, and then ultimately for university, and always with the expectation he was going to return to the mission field. And he did that. Ultimately, he would die in a Japanese internment camp in 1945. But as he was going through school, it turned out he was a very talented runner. And when he reached the University of Edinburgh, he he had become a phenomenal sprinter, a champion at the 100-meter dash. And he was an Olympian. And as the 1924 Olympics approached, there was one little problem. One of the qualifying heats for the 100, his best event, was going to be held on a Sunday. And he felt that it would not honor God's Sabbath for him to run on a Sunday. And so he withdrew from his best event and began to train for the 400, which was not his best event. Right? 400 is starting to head towards middle distance. It's run in a different style than the sprint of the 100. And, and runners are very seldom good at both the 100 and the 400, and he was no exception. His very best, personal best, was a 49.6 seconds, which was good, but not great. At the same time, he was having to to retrain himself. His sister, Ginny, did not approve of his running because she thought it was a distraction from the greater purpose, the whole reason he was there, to get ready for the missionary field. But little knew that his ability to run was a gift from God. There's a gift that he was using to glorify God. And so he told Jenny, I believe that God made me for a purpose. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Well, on the day of the 400 final, he was given a slip of paper that quoted 1 Samuel 2.30. He that honors me, I will honor. Inspired by this, He sprinted the entire distance. That's not the normal practice for the 400. But he finished in 47.6 seconds. He had dropped two seconds off his personal best and had set a world record. Obviously winning the gold medal. Eric Little, you see, had a purpose, but he also had a gift from God and he knew how to use that gift to glorify God. Well, like Little... Every believer in this room has a gift given by God, a spiritual gift. So, it's probably not running fast. I know mine is not running fast. And like little, we are each called to use our spiritual gift for the glory of God. And that is the theme of this morning's passage, which is 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 7 through 11. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The glory of God is once again our focus, hence why I called this part two. And to fully understand this passage, we, we have to actually consider the verses that come before it, which is always a good practice in Bible study. Chapter four begins right after Peter has described the suffering and triumph of Jesus Christ, that which saves us from our sins. Because first Peter chapter three concludes saying that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Right after his resurrection and ascension, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is now at the top. All the angels, all the powers, all the people, all of heaven and earth, other than the Father himself, is under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And Peter says that this reality should completely change everything about how we think and how we act. Not so that we can be saved, but because we have been saved. 1 Peter 4.2 says that we are to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, right? That's the rest of our life. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then in verse 3, he, he lists some of those human passions that we're not supposed to do. He mentions living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, Orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So sensuality, drunkenness, and idolatry are out if we're Christians. Why? Verse 11 says it. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So the overriding, dominant point that Peter is making here is that in every thought we think, every choice we make, And every action we take, we should live for the glory of God. And the Bible teaches that we are not just saved because God loves us. Though He certainly does. We are saved for His glory. The Bible teaches that God delivered the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt through various miracles for His glory that God was with the Israelites as they conquered Canaan, and he demonstrated great power for his glory. That ultimately, creation is being restored, not simply to provide a really nice eternal home for us, though it will be, but for his glory. See, God's glory is the central focus of his activity in the world. And I say that's good news, because glorifying God is so much bigger and more meaningful, and more significant, and more satisfying than simply trying to glorify ourselves. Well, ultimately, the glory of God should be the test for everything that we say or do. First Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we need to get into the habit of asking ourselves, does this... Glorify God. Speaking from personal experience, when we start asking ourselves that question frequently, it profoundly changes how we behave. It changes how we make choices. It changes how we resolve difficult issues. And this is critical because if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you bear the name and reputation of Christ. Right? So every person that we talk to, every person that we cut off in traffic, every person that we email, every text, every tweet, every Instagram, every Facebook, every political thing we we write, everything we like or retweet, says something about Jesus Christ, whether we mention his name or not, because we said it, and we carry his reputation in our hands. See, Christ's reputation is tied to our reputation. And so I want you to think about this past week for a moment. Think about what you did this week. If you emailed... Or posted, or texted, or tweeted, or blogged, or liked, or talked this week. I hope that, I think I covered everybody now. Did it all make God and Jesus look good? Would God want to be associated with what we said? The next time you're faced with a a difficult choice, I would strongly encourage you to ask yourself, does this choice glorify God more or does this choice glorify God more? When we're yelling hurtful words in anger or when we're gossiping or when we're considering taking spiteful action in revenge, ask yourself, does this glorify God? There are so many things that are legal and accepted in our culture today. But ask yourself, do they glorify the God who created me? Do they glorify the God who loved me even when I didn't love him? Do they glorify the God who pulled me out of the pit of sin that I created for myself through the sacrifice of his unique son, Jesus Christ? Things change when you begin to ask yourself these questions. The glory of God is something that's very powerful to contemplate, and the more you think about it, the more powerful it becomes in your mind. And when you passionately feel the importance of glorifying God, you will live differently through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, today's passage involves both how to live individually and as a group. For the glory of God. Peter begins by saying that individually must live responsibly for the glory of God. And verse 7 gives us two commands. And they are commands, right? They are not suggestions. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, okay, here come the commands. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. At the end of all things refers to the return of Jesus Christ. This is something Peter mentions often in this letter. And he is not specifying a particular time frame with this. He is saying instead that we are in the era of waiting expectantly, knowing that Jesus will return, knowing that there are no big events in salvation history that have yet to be done. And so while Jesus has not returned yet, he could return this afternoon or he could return 10,000 years from now. And because of that, we are commanded to be self-controlled and sober-minded at all times, in direct contrast to those sinful behaviors that I mentioned earlier from verses 3 and 4. And I want to be clear, the point of this is not that Christians should never have any fun, because that is a lie of the devil, because God created fun. Jesus came so that we would have life abundantly. We're supposed to enjoy things. What it means is that our fun can never be taken to the excess of becoming sin or idolatry. Now, if you go back to Peter's list from verses 3 and 4, some of it's quite unsurprising. Right, As believers in Jesus Christ, we must not get drunk ever because it does not glorify God. We must not engage in sexual sin because it desecrates our bodies, which are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We must not descend into debauchery or lewdness or coarse talk and humor because that damages the reputation of our Lord and Savior. And then the list mentions idolatry. And if you don't happen to have statues at home that you bow down to, that does not mean you're off the hook. Right? There is more to idolatry than just worshiping statues. In the 21st century, idolatry speaks to any of our passions or pleasures or pursuits that we take so far that they become distractions from God. And I would suggest that most of us here struggle with idols at one point or another, whether we realize it or not. You see, our idols in 21st century America are usually good things that are taken too far. Things like cars, boats, houses, friends, family, children, youth sports, good food, good drink, golf, fishing, hiking, biking, running, video games, Pokemon Go. Any of these in and of themselves can be good and fun and glorifying to God. But once they interfere with our relationship with God, they have become idols for us. When we have no time to read the Bible, but we have time to pursue our hobbies, that's what Peter's talking about. When we frequently miss church because of something that's going on on a Sunday morning or something we did the night before, That's what Peter's talking about. We have no time to pray, but we have plenty of time for our iPhones. That's what Peter's talking about. And these commands are not intended to take the fun and the joy out of our lives. Instead, they are to keep the fun from controlling our lives, from controlling us to the point where we miss the real purpose of our lives the thing to which we've been called, which is to glorify God. So why are we to live responsibly? Well, for the glory of God, of course. But Peter is also specific. He, He says there is a particular impact of failing to live in this responsible way, and it is on our prayers. And I think that's interesting. I don't think that's what we would go to first. right? We may not think that much about prayer. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we have this astounding privilege that the creator of the universe wants to talk to us. He likes it when we talk to him. He listens to us. And for those who have really strong prayer lives, I bet I could point to you and you could stand up and on no notice give a testimony about how freely conversing with the maker of the stars and the galaxies is a source of pure delight. And if prayer is not that kind of pleasure for you yet, then I would encourage you to make the effort to learn to pray more effectively because praying is a skill. And like any skill, it can be learned, it can be taught, and we improve with practice. And so I'd make you, I would encourage you to make it a priority every day to talk to God and to quietly listen to Him. Peter here is calling us to be people of prayer. And I would just say there are a number of things going on in this church right now that can help you grow in prayer at the same time it supports the ministry of this church. Neil already mentioned, today is day 21 of our 40 days of prayer. I'm very grateful we started on the 1st, so it keeps in seek. Today is the 21st, it's day 21. I would strongly encourage you to stay involved with that, or to get involved with that if you have not been. All right, and it, it does not matter if you are behind schedule. Just pick up wherever you left off, including day one if you haven't started yet. These these short little prayer prompts are terrific. Uh, I found them very beneficial in my prayer life. They do help prepare for the church-wide visioning process that kicks off on September 11th. So here I'm going to put a little PSA for that. Mark your calendar, September 11th. We will have a unified worship service at 845. There is only one worship service. Come for that. Then we have a breakfast. Then we have our first congregation-wide vision conversation. It's going to be an exciting day. We want everyone involved, whether you've been a part of this church for for 30 years or 30 minutes, because I guarantee you, you have something to say at this meeting. But these prayer prompts are also useful to help you get just in the right place to grow your relationship with God. And likewise, we gather here most Sunday nights at 6 p.m. to to pray as a group for about 45 minutes. And so I would encourage and invite you to join us. But the interesting thing, particularly as a 21st century all-American individualist American, is that even more important than living as responsible individuals for the glory of God, the heart of today's passage is commanding us to live in community for the glory of God. Because after verse 7, the rest of the passage is actually about how we live as a community, as a church body, for the glory of God. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. See, the heart of every aspect of how we relate to one another as a church must be love. It, quite simply, it's Christ's command in John thirteen thirty four. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. We are to love each other the way that Jesus first loved us. And how did he do that? By voluntarily going to the cross for us. Right, by suffering a humiliating and excruciating death for us. Because we have each sinned. Because God wants to restore us to relationship with him because of his love and his mercy and for his glory. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he loved us so much that he suffered and died for us. That he was raised from the dead. That everyone who puts their faith in him will have their sins forgiven with certainty. And we'll have everlasting life with certainty. And because he loved us, he commanded us to love one another the same way. The same sacrificial way. No matter how unlovable that person on the other side of the sanctuary might actually be. It does not matter how you feel about someone. I suspect many of us could name the name of someone here who has offended us or hurt our feelings at some point in the past, or vice versa, that we've offended, that we've hurt. And I say this not because I have a list in my head, but because this is a church, which means it is full of people who have residual sin in their heart, and that sin gets out sometimes. Sometimes it erupts like a volcano, sometimes it leaks like a... Something quite like toxic waste or something. It gets out. We do things we regret. But love, Peter says, covers a multitude of sins. And this early church proverb does not mean that love for one another literally makes the sins go away. That's what the sacrifice of Jesus Christ does. It simply means that love allows us to choose to overlook each other's little sins and failures. And this is because biblical love is not a feeling towards someone. You don't have to particularly like them to love them. Biblical love is a choice of attitude and action towards them, and Peter explores both of these this morning. Verse 9 illustrates the loving attitude. We're told to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So here's the thing. If we do a good deed for someone else here, but we're grumbling about it in our hearts, we're resenting it in our minds, or we're complaining about it to our friends, that's not love. That might be a misplaced sense of duty. It might be a result of feeling guilty. It might be a desire to get applause from other people, but it's not love. Because genuine love chooses to keep that positive, cheerful attitude, even if we know we're being taken advantage of. Even if we know the other person doesn't deserve it. Because we've been given love that we don't deserve. This isn't possible under normal circumstances. It's not human. It's not natural. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't live in normal circumstances, do we? We live in the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And if we remember that as we pray and study the word every day, it gets a lot easier to maintain that positive spirit as the Holy Spirit works in us. So how's your attitude towards other people here in this church? Now, verses 10 and 11 address our action, right? Verse 9 was about attitude. Verses 10 and 11 are about action. And specifically, we are told that we are to use our spiritual gifts to serve one another in love for the glory of God. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift that has been given to them by God to help build this church up, whether you realize it or not. There are a wide variety of gifts, and yours are quite likely different from mine. Peter kind of lumps them into two categories, but if you want a more detailed list of the gifts, I would recommend Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. The total collection of these gifts, as they come together within the community that we call church, it's only as we bring our gifts forward and use them that we can be fully functional and effective in glorifying God as a church. And so Peter summarizes these gifts. And the, and the point of it, the crucial point he is trying to make about them is that we are to serve one another. We are to use them to serve. So verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And again, each of your gifts are different from your neighbor's probably. That's what Peter means when he talks about God's varied grace. Here he doesn't mean grace as in salvation. He's referring to the gifting. And it's varied because there are so many different gifts. But fundamentally the point is that we have to be using our gifts. That's why we were given them. right? So it's not enough to just walk around with a head full of knowledge or a big pile of wisdom in your head, but you're not sharing it with anybody. right? The ability to lead, but you're not actually leading. The theoretical ability to administer, but you're not offering to administer anything. A hypothetical mercy you never apply to anybody. Or an abstract faith that never, never gets shared or worked out. Right? That stuff's useless. We have these gifts so that we can serve one another. And so let me get really practical for a minute. If David Platt has you realizing that you should be involved in making disciples, and you should be, Matthew 28, 19 and 20 makes clear the responsibility of the church is to make disciples as part of the church. We are part of the disciple-making process. And if Peter here this morning has you realizing that you need to be using your spiritual gifts and that maybe you aren't right now, then let me offer you a great way to do both. Three weeks from Wednesday, Team Kid begins again on Wednesday night, and that is our discipleship program for elementary school students. It's pretty cool. It's not just for kids from who come here on Sunday morning. We draw on a lot of kids from the neighborhood who want to learn about God, live for Jesus, and use the Bible. We're every Wednesday, 6.30 to 7.30. This year is a They published a new curriculum. I like it a lot because it systematically works through a lot of the great truths of the Bible. Things like who God is, who Jesus is, what he did, who we are as human beings, sin and salvation, and why we can trust the Bible. But in order to launch in about three and a half weeks, we still need some teachers and some assistants. Now the leader guide is very thorough. Forming a A lesson is relatively easy to prepare because so much of the material is provided. And this is an excellent way to use your gifts and make lots of disciples. So if you would, please talk to Audra Skiba, She's not here. You can talk to Bill over there, yeah, or me. And we can help you get connected in this way to use your gifts to make disciples. Now as we prepare to go out of, into the world this morning, I want to emphasize that the things in this passage today, the things in these verses, are not suggestions or advice. right? This is not self-help ideas. These things are not optional for Christians. They are commands. The nice thing is the original is very clear, whereas in English you can be ambiguous. They are commands. We are to be responsible. We are to love one another. We are to overlook one another's inevitable faults and failings. We are all to use our spiritual gifts for the glory of God. And if you do not use your gift, if you just come here on Sunday morning and enjoy great music and some okay preaching, if you come here Sunday after Sunday, but you never get involved in ministering and using your gift, then you are not only disobeying God. You are not only being a poor steward of the grace that he has given to you. You're not only denying yourself the pleasure of being in God's will, and there is nothing like being in God's will. That certainty you have that you are doing the thing he made you to do. But you are leaving us incomplete as a church. You are limiting our ability to make disciples of all nations, starting at this intersection and moving out to the ends of the earth. Won't you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for what you have done for us through the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. Through our faith in him, we have the promise and certainty of eternal life with you. But, Lord, we recognize, too, that comes with responsibility, an obligation to glorify you in how we live, to not just come here on Sunday morning and be good, but to glorify you every day in every way. So as we leave this morning, Lord, help us to, to be people who honor you, who glorify you, who maintain the reputation of Jesus Christ. Help us to be people who love one another and serve one another for the gifts that you have given us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The call this morning is to live for the glory of God. So that's the question. Are you living for God's glory? (laughs) The first step is to trust in him as your Lord and Savior. If you have not already done so, I invite you as we sing to come forward, pray, put your faith in him, and to receive eternal life. But the next part is the hard part. Living a life that glorifies God every day. So are you living responsibly for God's glory? Or are there, are there areas in your life where there is some sin, some dishonor to Christ that you need to confess and repent and turn away from? If so, I urge you to do that while we sing. You can pray from your seat or you can come forward, kneel at the stairs. And the question is, are you living in community for the glory of God? If you're not a member here, but you feel like God is calling you to make this church your family, won't you come forward and unite with us? For everyone here, I would urge you to examine your life in community, in this church community, right? Do your attitudes and actions glorify God by loving, serving everyone who's part of this community? Or is there an area of a resentful attitude or a failure to use your gifts that you need to, to repent of? Once again, now is the perfect time to confess your sin to God, and we know He is faithful to forgive.